0: This episode of Super Pulp Science is brought to you by Red Earth, a one-trunk theater production presented by the Theater Projects Manitoba at Prairie Theater Exchange, and it runs May 1st to 8th. You can get tickets at brownpapertickets.ca.
1: Attention citizens, it's time for Super Pulp Science.
2: This is Super Pulp Science where we talk about how genre gets made. We uh, we have a house full of guests today and Justin has asked uh, very nicely to be the hard-hitting reporter today because he doesn't understand what the hell I've been up to recently so I brought a cadre of people who have been involved in our Red Earth project and Justin is going to
3: Take it away. Yeah, so uh, kind of the idea here was I've been kind of watching this Red Earth project develop from the sidelines, and I've only half been paying attention, so I thought in the context of the podcast it'd be good to have somebody who's been outside of the loop asking the questions and kind of getting introduced to it along with everybody else who's listening to this podcast, so...
2: Yeah, Yeah. so why don't we let everybody introduce themselves and tell sort of what role you play in this grand adventure that we're on.
1: I'm Rick Chafe. I'm a writer, -writer, co-writer of a script story idea that we have inherited from other creators who most of some of whom are in this room. And I'm going to let Andrea eventually explain who those are and where those came from.
4: Uh, I'm Andrea Sardison. I'm the artistic producer of One Trunk Theatre. And uh, so I'm the producer of this project um, and also one of the sort of creative leads together with Gregory. Um, And so what that means is he and I together are developing the idea of a collaboration between the graphic novelists and theatre about the colonization of Mars. What's the story? How can we tell it? How do we integrate the graphic novel into the live show? And uh, how do we let the live show influence the graphic novel? That's what I'm up to. I'm finding the money, also very important. <laughs> the money.
3: Uh,
0: and I'm Christian Jordan, the other co-writer along with Rick. And I've been involved with the project for uh, a couple of iterations now. So uh, at one point I was helping out with the um, sort of collaboration and, and generation of uh, uh, scenes and ideas towards the beginning, uh, and then. <laughs> I became uh, a writer and was forced to write myself after the show. <laughs> and you're also an actor, too? And I'm an actor, yeah, and Rick, primarily. you've done in, some acting as
2: well, have you
1: not? Uh, almost none at all. Almost none at yeah. all. I came at writing from writing. From writing.
3: Huh. Okay, so prior to Gregory being involved with this project, what, what kind of, uh, what did Reddit look like? Where did it start, and how did it get to the point where you needed to bring this guy in? <laughs>
4: Baby handoff. Baby handoff. Um, so Red Earth began because I was really interested in the mission to Mars, um, the Mars One mission, mm-hmm. and just what was happening between Earth and Mars and human beings and how they were going to to live out their lives <laughs> as a species. <laughs> and so um, it started a, almost four or five years ago. We just got together with a group of theater artists, including Christian um and a ufo specialist and a few other people in the community we were like you know how do we unpack science fiction and this story and we started playing around with ideas and gregory attended one of those workshops and we got to talking about how uh what his format is how he tells a story and and we were trying to translate that into the stage and back and forth and we thought that that was like a really rich collaboration and 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 field to explore so after that workshop Um, he became a a central collaborator, and and we thought um, that just helped us focus the form of the show, although the content of the show, This Mission to Mars, continued to evolve. Does that make sense? Yeah. Great.
3: So the, the workshop itself, you were just kind of exploring the ideas and seeing where it would go, but you didn't have a direction quite in mind, and that workshop kind of helped hone down the project and
4: sort of like, so one trunk, the company that I run, we, we do a, a process called devise theater. And so a lot of our early workshops aren't about being like getting specific yet about this is what we're going to do. Right. It's about going, what are all the many, many different things we can, we can do. What are all the many different things that are possible? Brainstorming. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But on our feet and using different media. Devise theater. Devise theater. Oh, the dear listener, let us know
2: what that
4: is. Yes. So, So in our early workshops, um, uh, we were looking at how we might use projection. We were looking at how we might use puppets. Uh, we were doing a lot of different kinds of writing. Um, and, and, and in our second workshop, when we started, uh, working with our whole design team, we still didn't have a story like for certain, and we didn't really have a script for certain. We just Mm -hmm. had a whole bunch of ideas that we were trying out to try to figure out which was the direction we wanted to go.
0: There was something I really liked about back in that workshop, too, in those early stages when you uh, begin working with device theater, too, that it is about brainstorming and, and kind of anything goes, but also you're sort of limited uh, by what you have in the room and the sort of creative parameters of, like, it, it's almost limiting knowing that there's so much you could do that you, you, you kind of take what you have and you, you create something, and It always ends up being pretty specific. So I remember we had like an old style overhead projector and we were, you know, using it like a droid and coming up with just little, just the tiniest little scenes kind of thing. Just somehow were intersecting with the themes that we were exploring. And you come up with these really nice moments that uh, I think can resonate whether you end up using them or not. But they start to uh, push you into the right direction into uh, certain aesthetics or uh, ideas that uh, developed into something else later on.
3: I think actually that we've talked about stuff like that before where if you have nothing but free time and you can do whatever you want, like there are no limits, just go, you blank and it's hard to actually come up with something. But if you have just a couple parameters, it really helps get things going. Having too much freedom can be a bad thing as well. Yeah,
4: that, that's true. And I think the the art of device theater is really the art of task giving this is kind of what I've learned and so um rather than going as you're saying oh we have a whole week let's you know uh, let's just see what happens it's a lot of like okay we have 15 minutes to write a scene using an overhead projector it has to move four times go yeah or we have half an hour and you need to uh create a a scene using your body only a physical scene and then this playwright is going to watch you and they're going to write the script for it go Uh and 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 Something that's great about the time is that it, it encourages creativity, but it also means you don't waste time because if you if you spend half an hour doing something horrible, then you just throw it out and uh, or you let it kind of you know simmer in the back and and then you can focus more time on the things that do work. For sure.
1: sure. These uh, two workshops you're talking about so far, I, I came in uh, to the project. At the point where they were presenting the work they had created at the end of the f- first or the second workshop. So uh, I think these, these workshops were probably like a year apart. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, when you talk about a workshop, we're talking uh, like five days a, a week, two weeks. Um, the first one was a week.
4: Five days. Yeah. Five days. The second oh. one was two weeks, though, right? Yeah. Yes. So, all, all in whole. Yeah. yeah. So
1: six artists or so working in a room for, uh, for two weeks that included uh, a, 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 an animator, like a computer animator, uh, a graphic artist who's drawing the pictures that are getting animated, uh, four actors, uh, one of them, Christian, writing his butt off every night with different <laughs> assignments, Andrea uh, working all of these different teams together all at the same time. And, and
4: the and sound, a lighting and a projection designer. So, stage <laughs> so more like
1: 10 artists and at that point. That one was
0: huge considering like in terms of like, yeah, the, the first workshop was really just like, we were we just throwing things, show. yeah, we, yeah we, <laughs> we were just trying to do whatever we could. We had a UFO specialist there. You know, like, <laughs> so things got awesome. a lot more specific for the second one. Oh, was the
3: UFO but. specialist as entertaining as I'm imagining in my head?
4: Oh, he, yeah. he's, he's entertaining um, in that he's extremely knowledgeable and, uh, and about space, about science fiction, and about every UFO sighting in Canada in, in history. Wow. Like if there's a UFO sighting, they call Chris Rutowski at the U of M and they're like, hey, can you record this? Did anyone else see it? So um, for me coming from, like I don't come from a science fiction background, it was really eye-opening for me to be, to, to, to learn about the genre and to be inspired that way. Well, this certainly looks different. Hello
1: those trees over there they look different too yeah like nothing we've seen my entry point into this was that a couple of days before they're ready to present the um what they've been working on for the last two weeks like bring in an audience and show them all the stuff right andrea says you know we don't we've only got i think we're only gonna have about 20 minutes worth of of, of stuff to show the audience and and uh, so i mean if you can come down well i came down and it was an hour they w- within that last few days I don't know what happened but boom they had so much stuff if some of it made sense some of it didn't make sen- made sense but it was so obvious that they could generate so much material uh, in so many different styles they were playing with so many different ways of presenting or creating a graphic novel on stage that's where I got all excited and said okay I want in
3: nice. And uh, just trying to understand, like, the relationship between, like, the actors and the visual artists, did you send the visual artists off to to make slides to be projected onto um, the stage, or did you give them some direction, or, like, what was the the back and forth there?
2: I can answer this one. All right. (laughs)
3: Gregory is back on the podcast. Yeah, I've
2: been practicing my baby dance there. Was yeah, that, that was out? excellent baby work, though. Yeah. Like, everyone um, that. It's like riding a bike. You never forget how to <laughs> put a kid to sleep. Um, what was really cool about the just the whole process of that visuals, like connecting the visuals to the actors, is that we were brainstorming what the beats, what was not going to be visual from the actor's point of view, like what they were not gonna express from their mouths or express with their body language, we had to try and express with the visual that was added into the scene. And then what made that dynamic was a whole other question that the animators and the projectionists, and we would try to figure that out. And so of that hour, I think that in that workshop, there were maybe five minutes where everything actually worked to the point where the audience was like wow i've forgotten that all of this is happening around me and there's just a story here in all of those layers and that was the real magic of the workshop for me was watching when it really worked and saying ah we we have something here i don't know how to do it again necessarily but i know that we've hit the mark accidentally so now we went away and brainstormed what those five minutes were and tried to turn it into what red earth is now Exciting part for me.
4: What was really cool about these uh, three different workshops is that each time we had a workshop, the story completely changed. Um, So, again, we were kind of after how to tell the story more than the story itself. And um, one of the things that I learned about science fiction—and correct me if I'm wrong, though—but uh, is is just about like building the world and building the history of the world is such a key thing. And and so each time we we workshop, we're like, oh, this is the story of Red Earth. But then when we came back again, we're like, no, I think that's the backstory of the version of Red Earth we want to tell. And now in this third iteration, it's like this: we're telling the story of the third trip to Mars. And the first two trips were what we kind of explored in the first two workshops that have oh, just nice. become like this shared history that we now all have. And so um, after that second workshop, it, we, we, which allowed us to figure out how do we want to tell the story? How do we want to show a graphic novel on stage? And what does this collaboration actually look like? How do we do it? Then Gregory and I went away and said, okay, I think we need to, we need to tell the story of women colonizing Mars and here's why. And, uh, uh, and we kind of came up with the general beats of the story And then I decided I don't want to write this. I don't think I'm the person to to write this. Plus, I have to produce it and direct it, so that is too much to do. So I looked to who are, like, some great writers, and and Rick and Christian obviously came to mind, and so they've been putting the script together. And what's I think another... so I'm going on and on, but the other thing I think is really neat about this whole collaboration is we have so many people working together in each of the different um, uh, departments. Like, we have... Um, three people working on the projection: an animator, an illustrator, and a projection artist. We have a set designer and a set mentor. We have a production designer and a production mentor. We have um, two writers, Rick and Christian, writing together, who are in different stages of their career and come from different kinds of writing backgrounds. And so, and, and then, then Gregory then and I
2: yell story points at them from yeah. outside <laughs> of their writing yeah. room and yeah. make, just ruin every all their hard work every two weeks.
4: Yeah. So it's like a really a really rich creative environment it's that's what i think is really inspiring to me right now
3: but i, th- I think we missed uh, a bit of a part here like we did so you guys did the first two workshops and now th- a lot more people have become involved and we're we're ramping up to something a bit bigger so what's the story there
2: like were with the stages it was andrea basically said you know i think we have enough of something to approach a theater company to partner with us to Which is the point of the workshops to see if there's
3: enough to, okay.
2: Yeah. Well, and, you know, from my perspective, we didn't know if we could pull any of it off. Right. And so we applied for a grant to say, we want to, rather than just make a bunch of our friends work for free to see if we can pull something off, we applied for a grant to say, can we pay everyone for those two weeks to do an experiment? You know, the same way that, you know, any kind of experimentation happens. Uh, On the scientific level, you get all the people who think they can into a room, and you let them try, Mm -hmm. right? And sometimes the experiment yields results, and sometimes it doesn't, but the search is sort of the point. So we had all agreed at that first sort of two-week collaboration that if there's nothing here, that's okay, as long as we all do our best to look for it,
3: right? It wasn't a foregone conclusion, but then there was enough there, I think. It should probably helped too if there was all the if there was the pressure to have something tangible at the end of it. You probably wouldn't have been able to have as much fun.
2: Well, and that was a neat thing about the audience that came. You know, you guys reached out to people who make theater, and so it wasn't just like people who were coming for entertainment, but coming to give feedback of is there something here, right? It's it's not unlike in the work that we do. Uh, in graphic novels like bringing a portfolio review, right? You can go away by yourself, you can write it, you can illustrate it, but you have to bring it before an audience, before an editor, and see what that feedback is in order to know if there's something for the market, right? It's, uh, yeah, kind of a wild experience. And really neat for um, long-time listeners to the podcast, dear listener, we've talked a little bit about breaking story before from a writer's room perspective and how it works in film and television. Essentially what Andrea and I are doing is breaking the story down into the essential beats giving it um, to the script writers, and then the script writers are saying, no, this does work or this doesn't work, and and we try not to say no to their throwaways, right? Their goal is to make it sound right because they have experience on the stage. Um, I'm used to giving, putting words in characters' mouths, but they're static images, right? So it, it has to read real differently. And that was something that in that first workshop, that first writing workshop, where I was writing dialogue and actors were saying them inside of a 10 minute window, and they were giving it their all, and you just saw right away when your lines were awful. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right? And it wasn't their fault. Yeah. Right? They're bringing as much life to some dead lines as possible. <laughs> Do you find that? What, what's that experience like for you, Rick?
1: Uh, it's interesting because you're talking about what is good dialogue in a static. Picture that is that is summarizing the exact dramatic moment. Oh my God! There's creatures everywhere. I'm, okay, so that's me doing. Yeah, bad no, that basically novel. sums up most of my work. <laughs> 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 Whereas, I write that down. <laughs> yeah. Whereas what we do as playwrights is write the entire 10-minute scene that leads up to them saying, "Oh my God! There's creatures everywhere," and it's it's so many different. Moments that, that, that lead up to that, whereas you're freezing the, the peak yeah, of it.
2: I think in comics, the emotional uh, buildup is imagined, okay. right? Okay. Whereas in theater, it's delivered.
1: Yeah. Right? Absolutely. And if you then go into musical theater, because I'm working on a musical at the same time, you try to build it to the point of. I'm a few bars. <laughs> no, <laughs> you try to build it to the point of that emotional peak, and what they say the, the tradition in musical theater is: you get to the point where the only way of expressing the otherwise inexpressible is by bursting into song. So, if it's you like see, the
2: epiphany is the song. Yeah. So yeah. if you
1: see a badly set up musical, and there's tons of them. Uh, the scene is there just in order to as an excuse for them to sing this great song. If you see it well done, then you then it's you're completely emotionally involved with the story at the moment it breaks out, and the song is the answer to everything that's been happening so far. By Play some playmate, King Kong's
2: big brother. In comics, the epiphany is often the page turn. You're trying to build up uh, to the moment yeah. where the person says, that's "Oh my gosh, perfect. I must know what the next action is." And they become complicit. They become the mechanical force that makes the story continue. Cool. Right. So,
3: cool. It's that page turn and going from like 9 to 16 panels on a page to one one event unfolding spread across two pages. That full page spread is kind of the, the moment of breaking into song.
2: Yeah, because in comics it's um, space for time, right? That's how time is presented linearly, but space is how much time you're supposed to take as the reader whereas in theater the body language or the tone or the music or the lighting cue or the you know change in sets or any of those things tell you about time changing and what i think is the most magical in like in theater is like a lighting change can put everybody in a different place
1: yeah it's a i i take it it's either a panel break or a or a page turn what you can do with that lighting change or even i mean you can do it without the lighting change you can do it with a with a bare stage with no lights and the actors are entirely doing it with a twist of their body. Yeah, they've you they have let you know we're in a completely different place, a different time. I may be a different character at this moment. It's, it's instant, in a way that film, for instance, can't be. Yeah, they can edit, and theater but they can come alive. With but just, they can't twist your mind that fast.
2: Well, right, yeah, and theater can come alive with just two people talking in a space. Comics die on two people talking in a space right yeah. There's just there's only so many ways you can show that dynamically before it starts to wear on the reader right? and
1: that's actually the problem we're dealing with right at this moment <laughs> christian and i have been working on a two-hander scene two actors uh and it's it's the it's the two people who have been so far just butting heads against each other but they've now got a reason to get together in one of their cabins and say okay what's really going on here and becoming friends. Well, we've written it as probably a 10-minute scene, <laughs> but in the in theater that can work, but in the context of we're now talking about a graphic novel on stage in a set that actually has story panels in it, if they're in a story panel, a single story panel for 10 minutes, we have just killed the scene completely. Like right. there's some bleed over aesthetic that well, we're going to be working on.
2: So, for me the like experimental part of this whole process is that Um, you know in comics you work from a script someone gives you a script you know what the people are supposed to say you're given direction you illustrate the script you bring the script to the foreground but you guys are writing a script that my job is to add to and embellish rather than present and that is to me the sort of the where the magic of this is is that when I read the words that you guys put down in this new draft something will trigger in me where I will say, you know, Andrea has seen it, where I basically can't sit in my chair. I just kind of crouch on it.
1: You burst into song.
2: Yeah, it's like <laughs> bursting into song, right? Where it's like, oh, we can show it this way, or this symbol is here, or they've used this word three times, whether they know it or not. I can turn that into this symbol, which we connect to here and here and here. Yeah. So, you know, that's the collaboration
0: part. Yeah. And I think that there's just like something so unique about this particular collaboration too, because particularly in... Um, traditional playwriting, you aren't writing in a way where the final, it's not that the final production is clear to us, but the form and the language uh, to a degree is like pretty clear and, and we've worked with it before. So there's a lot of moments where Rick and I are just sort of blankly staring at each other like, oh, Jesus, how are we going to do this scene? We're like, ah, they'll draw it. It'll be fine. (laughs) It's fine. (laughs) And I'm, you know, uh, joking a little bit, but to a degree, it's enabled us to do... And create scenes that we—I don't think we would normally ever consider writing. Otherwise, not for stage, yeah, Yeah. for For stage, for screenplay, perhaps, right? You know, where you you can visually do
1: all this stuff that you don't need the actors for, or or that you can't do with actors alone. Well, that could—we could have a huge transition, or we could visit different parts of the spaceship, or or bring creatures, creatures everywhere.
2: by might, tossing it over to Gregory. might we fail utterly though this oh, is absolutely right? right yeah yeah and that's kind of it chance. like who knows that's to me also it's like the great the great through line of science fiction is exploration and here we are trying to explore a medium and just, there might be creatures everywhere
3: <laughs> yeah the like the idea of projecting on top of a a stage while a play is going on is like it's it just seems like an obvious great idea. How widespread is this kind of process?
2: Obvious to you as a visual <laughs> well, guy. As yeah. soon
4: as I heard it, I'm like, duh, that's great. <laughs> um, well, projection has sort of come into the theater in the last, I would say, 15 years or so um, and starting to become more and more common. Um, and people are finally learning how to use it. Like, I think as an audience, too, they're learning how to uh, to watch projection on stage because I think... For the first, you know, even up till five years ago, when you saw a projection on stage, you're like, "Oh, I'm seeing projection on stage." Before you could actually see it as part of, like, just just see it as part of the show. You know, you're like, right. take a minute to be like, "Oh, they're using a projector." So now we're getting more used to that. Um, what's What's interesting about this particular piece and really unique is that we're creating 100 percent of the content, which is is hasn't been done that I know of. I'm sure I'm sure somewhere it has. We're, uh, hang I mean, on, I baby, know. baby, hand up. Baby if we we have to practice puke, for our. Except stuff. for he's puking oh, everywhere. Barf is all right. um, I work with John. <laughs> 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 uh, so we're. Like, you know, a a lot of the projection that we that you might see on stage now could be found images like your images you're purchasing online and you're editing a little bit and then you're adding it as a a sunset in the back of a scene or something like that. That I'm just being kind of general. It's it's used in many ways. Um, But what we're doing is Gregory, everything you see on the stage, Gregory will have created by hand, which is extremely labor intensive. And a, and a huge um, project, and we're trying to figure out then how do we make the actors sometimes seem 2D, and how do we make the illustration sometimes cool. seem 3D, you know what I mean, yeah. and and how does that, when do we do that transition, and, and how does that work together?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And it hopefully not be a distraction, like you're saying. Yeah. Right, absolutely, because yeah, so often like projection and that, and that kind of stuff, as Andre already sort of uh, stated, it, it either is like a backdrop or it's distracting in some way, but so like... Whether or not this is a failure, I think it sort of unlocks a new form where these, where theater and, and the graphic novel can kind of intersect. As like a very clear example, and I don't know how much we'll actually utilize this. For instance, but in one of these workshops, we had a, a scene uh, with a character that you know was back on Earth suddenly. Or I, how did this work exactly? Oh, we had a, a new character, just a one-time appearance, and. In old style theater, I guess when there was like a lot of <laughs> money still floating around on Broadway or something like that, you would just have somebody come in and do a one scene. Or if you wanted to do it now, maybe you would have a character double cast, which is kind of lame too and takes you out of it. In this, we had uh, one of our actors like on a screen behind a projection of an, the drawing of a new character. And so they're sort of behind it and you can still see them, but there's this drawing in front of them. And that it just creates this. Brand new image and a whole new character, and it's—it doesn't take you out of it at all. It's this like really astonishing like.
3: That's so cool. Yeah.
0: So it, it like um, of course, if you push two um, uh, art forms like this together, there's going to be problems. But they also unlock and solve problems that. Uh, yeah, you didn't see
3: the potential for before you tried. How often are the actors getting blinded by projection lights? <laughs> uh, yeah,
4: I don't know if our actors know what they're in for. <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, we'll, we'll obviously find ways to make it safe. We promise. But, um, but it, it, for, for them, um, we've cast the show with actors that I think are are very interested in the in the genre, but who also have to be. Technically very very good because it they need to they'll need to stand in one exact position facing one exact way um, For almost every single scene um, Everything it needs to
3: line up. Yeah, just perfectly
4: yeah Because the image creating the image is so predominant whereas mm-hmm. in a, a more traditional like you know kitchen sink production If you don't uh, like what I, what I mean by that is just like one set um, with Wait. you know everybody's in the same room for the entire show and um, if you're if you're not exactly on your mark, or you have some more freedom to 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 move things around, even in rehearsal and try things out, um, that that's kind of how those shows evolve. This one is like, okay, you're going to do as much as you can. We're going to bring this scene alive as much as we can, but you have to stay in this panel because <laughs> you can't move into this part of the story yeah. yet. So it's it's going to be it's going to be a challenge. And um, the other thing that we're doing to accommodate that is in traditional Canadian theatre, we'll. we'll, we'll um, it, it's like a three-week rehearsal process. That's how most theater in this country is, is rehearsed for production, full-time rehearsal. And in that last kind of week, or maybe, um, maybe it's three and a half weeks, then you start adding in the technical elements. So it's just the actors right. in a room with the director, the stage manager, um, and then they move into the actual theater, not the rehearsal hall, the lights start to be added, the sound starts to be added, et cetera. That will not work with us because we need to have projection in every single yeah. scene. So we are going to have three, three and a half weeks of full technical rehearsal um, where all of the designers. doesn't seem like much time. It's not. It <laughs> probably isn't enough time. That's the grand experiment. We need a book in 10 days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So all the designers will be in the room. The lighting will be there. The projection will be there. The sound will be there before we even move on to this stage, because um, it'll be so necessary for our storytelling. Now
2: oh, we're getting somewhere. Those buildings didn't just grow, they were made. There's this uh, synthesis that happens that I think is so amazing is that when it works, you go, okay, we're doing that like that from now on, right? <laughs> that's the sort of the magic of theater, is that you're not sure that it'll come together and then when it all lines up, it's like, oh, there it is, that's that's the thing, let's do that, right?
0: What do you have to say? <laughs> 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 he's
1: uncertain, but yeah, exactly. we'll sell him on it, he's, he's gonna come around. Justin, can I ask a question of these guys? Because yeah. there's there's stuff that I haven't found out about All right, yet, yeah, or or, yeah, yeah. or what their ideas on this stuff is. Our set design is um, we do have a flat stage where actors can be out in front and uh, like in any play that you see, but uh, we also have a vertical uh, screen with different levels behind the screen, so it really is set up like the panels of. Of, of a two-page of a, a full what do you call it a full two-page spread, two yeah. two page page spread yeah a two-page spread so there's all these little preset rooms back there that each can be panels now what i'm uh, like really looking forward to or maybe we can't do this at all i don't know is is the idea of how does a graphic novel is read by the eye following yeah. the panels and you and a reader has the option of jumping ahead on the page, but jumping back on the page, looking at this panel, that panel, the other panel, but assembling the linear order of panels in their own reading time. Are we going to make use of that at any times, where we have all the panels available at once, or are we only showing one panel at a time and everything else is blacked out, or...?
2: (laughs) Well, in our last meeting about this exact thing, we tried a few different thoughts, but since then, I've been thinking about how science fiction in and of itself is usually put in a setting whereby the actors are performing actions, and then the technology or the um, environment is telling you another story about those characters as they move through it. And so I started thinking about what we have to do in order to present not something that's a distraction. You know, like you walk onto the bridge of the Enterprise, yes, it's interesting, but it doesn't get in the way of the action of the characters. And so for me, I think our big challenge is once we put all the assets that we've made visually on the stage. I think in tech what's going to happen is we're going to be pulling out pictures and saying, no, the actors have that covered. No, the actors have that covered. No, that emotional beat is already there. And so only having the audience have things added to the experience rather than overlapping or distracting or let that. Ah, what do you think? Yeah, you're I think the- we're
4: going to have a we're going to have a lot and a lot of our work is going to be like, okay, no, we don't need we don't need that. We don't need that. But the other thing that's been kind of neat in response to your question, Rick is um, we've been able to start or I've been able to start thinking about the time in between the scenes um, in the way that you're talking about. So we have a, a scene Um, and then as we transition into the next scene my question is like how much can we tell about a character in that transition and 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 rather than putting it in in lines of dialogue can we do it as a a new page that the audience reads before the next scene begins so we see for example our character glory the captain Um, in between two scenes maybe she goes and uh, to her command center and we see her spying over all of the crew um, that's not written in the script, but it tells us something about the character.
1: And do we see the actors playing the crew, or we see the drawings of Glory? I think it goes Glory. back and
4: forth. Yeah. Like sometimes, sometimes it's like a close-up of her face, and then and then it's like the actual actor in a uh, in an environment. So I think we'll j- it'll be everything. Yeah, we're gonna do it all. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I want I want at least once that we see the whole. It's a two-page spread well, with all we, the things, yeah, even, if we, even if it's only for a moment.
2: In our last meeting, we were talking about this ability to add things and then leave them up. So yeah. as elements are being exposed, we leave certain visual elements up until the whole background is one projection that tells sort of the backstory. So we could, you know, one way to do that, the most obvious way to do it is when characters are talking about something, you show what they're talking about. But You don't want to feel like a PowerPoint slide. Yeah. So... I think instead to try and show, at least from my perspective, is to try and show things that are a little bit esoteric and a little bit um, artistic representations of ideas so that they're like, oh, okay, this is somebody's interpretation of that emotion through this lens of illustration. Um, And how this all, dear reader, how this all came about is we have one of the characters in the story who is drawing and writing and making accounts of the story that is sort of secret that the audience gets let in on but the other characters don't and that's kind of the conceit of how the Are how you gonna this have happens.
3: Word, uh thought bubbles internal dialogue
2: no uh, no <laughs> no uh now for me well maybe andrea maybe. andrea is the boss so if i get my way no but um not the,
3: anything pivotal but it'd be hilarious if oof. like a thought bubble popped up you know, she's really cute. <laughs> <laughs> oh, can um, we
1: please have somebody think what the.
3: Yeah. <laughs> See, the thing is
2: now. Okay, so if we're gonna get like we're gonna talk real comics now for a second. In comics, a thought bubble is like. Um,
3: it's taking away from is the, the so, actor. Yeah.
2: yeah. No, it's the soliloquy. So if you're going to have a thought bubble, then it must be present throughout the story all the time once you let the audience know we know what this character is thinking when we need to if you leave it out why did you present it in the first place right as an option for them to learn the story so unless there was from my perspective unless there was a way to add to the story at every point to a way that lifted the story emotionally to a, a point that was functional you wouldn't put it in just as a gimmick, just to let people know, like, "Hey, we're making comics," necessarily, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, in traditional comics these days, thought bubbles are kind of passe, right? You would put it in exposition. Yeah, Justin. Yeah, <laughs> Justin.
4: No, but I think that's interesting because um, I think the way that we are doing the thought bubble in the in the script, and and uh, people have to come see the show in order to really know what I'm meaning. But um, is one of our main character has these logs that she does. Um, sending them back to the earth and then as you're saying writing in the journal and her own personal thoughts and I think that's the Justin you're right after all yeah because the journal is her thought thought bubble yeah Yeah. oh damn it you're such a stupid (laughs) question now (laughs) but that's the that's the kind of neat thing so this this which we haven't said on the podcast yet this thing that we're creating is not only a play but then there's a, a graphic novel that everyone goes home with after the show. And the graphic novel is this prop that the actor is creating throughout the whole oh.
3: See, and that that was my question. Are you going to make a graphic novel in tandem with the play? Or are you going to wait till the play was over and make a graphic novel based on the, pay, the play? Yeah, like, it's you know? happening
2: in tandem. And the idea is that the book itself is... Um uh, like enriches the experience of the play. It is itself, if you just found the book or you, or you buy it from us at a show in the upcoming year, it will be a, a sort of a personal journal. It'll go from a manual to a journal to a letter of a failed mission to Mars. And it We don't will, know if it's failed. It probably will fail. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be up to Rick and Christian to decide whether we make it or not. But the point that I'm making here is that you'll have this part of a story. Just like all journals, all epistolary works feel like they're missing the action, right? Missing the essential part, and you have to imagine into it. That's how I want to make this one piece. But if you saw the play, it would present itself as the thought bubble, essentially, of that character. Darn it. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so we are using thought bubbles, the whole play. We're changing the name. It's
4: Mm -hmm. called Red Earth the Thought
2: Bubble.
4: (laughs) Remember this warning. Do not
2: return to Mars. I have a question for you, Rick. Yeah. You've written a lot of plays, yeah. why would you get involved in this?
1: <laughs> yeah, good question. right because yeah, like yeah. you
2: do a thing and you do a thing well and you know what it is so why experiment why does experimentation still excite you
1: well i th- in my mind picture of what I do <laughs> uh, every play is an experiment on how to tell a story because by the time you've finished writing the play and actually have it produced and, and sometimes even then, you get another production and, and I will be involved in the second or even the third production and still taking your part, still rewriting it. Um, by the time you get to the end of that process, you're an expert in how to write that play. Oh But then you start the next one and suddenly you're an idiot and you have no idea. You like phone up your playwriting friends and say, How do you how do you start a story again? <laughs> because you're back to the beginning of something. By the end, you know everything and you get to pick and choose all of the little bits and edit out that piece and oh, I think I need a little more here. But you're embellishing, you're enriching, you're you're, you're taking what's really the ground has been all tilled and, 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 and you're just you're tweaking. Um but when you start it's all yeah it's all it can go in any direction and that's that that blank canvas scary part that you were talking about earlier Justin so this is such a cool way to play with completely different set of rules um, i don't expect to write a series of 15 of these but who knows maybe we will and we we'll, right. we will learn how to how to uh, use this form in a really different way but it all ends up adding on to the, enriching in some way the next bunch of projects as well. But as I said, when I came and saw that, uh, that second workshop presentation, just seeing how many different ways of telling a story you guys had come up with under Andrea's tasking, uh, so they, they didn't all make sense together, but each individually, I could see what you were doing in different ways that you were presenting how to work with graphics and actors live on stage at the same time. And I just thought, oh, this is just so much fun.
2: Well, one of the things that I find <laughs> fascinating about working with people who work in theater is there's this enormous capacity in, in your creative side of things to trust that the other people will do their job well. Oh, yeah. Like people just say, that the lighting person is going to do that. We're just going to trust that the you know that person's gonna have this done we're gonna trust that that other actor they know their part we have to trust that right and you bring only what you are good at essentially you bring your skill and you just sort of give in to the trust of that whole experience i think that was really neat and so when andrea would come in and say guys this is what i want to see and this is how it will look to the audience and we'd be like well how the hell are we going to pull that off and then but rather than anyone ask that question people would say well With lighting, I could do this. And someone would say, with sound, I could do this. And I would say, well, with an illustration, I could do this. And then we'd just see where all those things overlapped. And then the actor would be like, hey, yeah, P.S., I can bring it to life, right? And it was like, you know, that to me is the real.
1: And that's like especially real in Andrea's world of devised theater. I don't normally, I, I have done devised projects over the years. But playwrights are usually the last person, in my experience anyway, to be involved in a a devised project because we are so linear minded. Tell the linear story, tell the linear story. We want to get to, give me the whole thing so I can write it down. Um, And that's not the way devised work. Devised is about breaking it and breaking it and breaking it and breaking it and trying something new and, and throwing it out and or recreating it or throw another task on top of it. So it's iterations and iterations and iterations as you grope towards what may be a final story by the day that you open, or may not even be yet. It may right. be more like an, a theatrical explosion of ideas and concepts and images that the audience is still going. What's the story? Like that was so cool, but what's the story? Like I've right. been to many plays like that, and it's you and know that's not a playwrighty thing to do. <laughs> the
2: word part of my brain is saying like the real difference here is between improvised and devised, right? Like it's not that they're making it up on the day they've devised a way in which to present to you yeah. something that feels improvised maybe in some moments but has a structure yeah. and a part
1: Yeah, I'm not even I'm not even talking about improv- an improvised feeling. I'm talking about there's a whole bunch of pieces that have been put together like a collage that may not have yet or may never have or may, may not even be intended to have a traditional linear story through line of any kind. It may be more like a holistic uh, assemblage of stuff that put all together you got a big gestalt going on and the audience gets it or doesn't get it if they're yeah. not able to get their mind around that but you know when you see a dance piece are you watching a story or are you experiencing a yeah. thing
2: yeah. well and it's uh, it's what you know Justin and i do in 2d work what you're trying to do between words and pictures and color is create a juxtaposition yeah. right you're yeah. just yeah. you're presenting things that may not uh, appear normally separately but when you put those words those pictures those colors together only together in that relationship do they have meaning. If you separate them, they have no meaning, and this is, you know. But do you find there's always
0: an order that you approach, uh, that you approach your uh, your work? Like, is it always that you start with the script and then you build and you draw that, or is it ever, do you ever reverse it?
2: Well, we've done it different ways. Like, um, sometimes it's just an image, like the project we're working on right now that Justin and I are doing together, Dragon Nanny, right?
3: You tell them how that came apart. Um, so I, usually my answer to this question is it always starts with uh, an anchor image or a scene. A specific scene taking place with two characters and I have no idea how they got there, what happens after, but that scene sticks in my mind and won't go away and that's how I know to kind of create a story around it. We have up on the
2: studio wall the drawing he originally did of Cassie and Tonk,
3: this little girl with an umbrella and a little scraggly robot and it became that entire project, just the thing that wouldn't go away. And uh, so in, in both Cas- the, the two graphic novels that we worked on together, Casting Tonk and Rust and Water, we always draw in the books for people who buy them. And certain scenes and certain characters start reappearing as we do dozens and dozens and dozens of these sketches. And in, when we did and Tonk, I kept drawing a robot who had sank to the bottom of the ocean with a bunch of mermaids or an octopus or a shark. And I just liked that idea. And that became Rust and Water. And then in... Greg has always been drawing this robot with really l- long, arms. Like, yeah, technically arms. <laughs> and he, uh, because he starts the drawing and I finish it, he always has this robot with his arms out, and I always draw a little dragon that he's holding up.
2: It's sort of like we do the, you know, it's, it's like an offer. Like I do the drawing, I set up the drawing, and then he finishes it off, right? So I would often draw a robot or some, you know, big hulking mechanical thing with his arms up either as if it's receiving a gift or presenting a gift. And so sometimes he would put something in the hands of it, giving it to somebody else. And then after a while, he started drawing these dragons, just like nesting in the hands of this robot. And then we just started calling her the Dragon Nanny. And then that kind of became the plot of like, well, what would
3: a story about it's that device. be? Yeah, yeah, that's device theory yeah. right there. And that's, yeah, yeah now a 72-page book that I'm 12 pages into yeah. finishing. So there <laughs> so we go. Yeah. Suppose this alien infection spreads to all of us. Every moment counts.
1: I was talking to a few friends the other night, one of whom had just been to see a, a Buster Keaton do- documentary, the great silent film clown. and. Uh, and during the documentary, he he said, or somebody said, I don't know if he was interviewed or whatever. But uh, I just need, I just need the first, the beginning of the story and the end of the story. I don't, I have to know how it. it begins, how it ends, and the rest is filming. We make it up as we go, and so she talked about.
2: And if there's any dear listeners, any DMs in the crowd, any uh, people who do role playing games, you know. You know how it is. You just need the beginning and the end. The players will figure out all the rest.
1: Yeah, the rest yeah. Is, is tweeners. It's, yeah. uh, we, there's a there's a scene where he was supposed to leap from one building to the other and make it. And he didn't make it because he was always doing insane stunts, the impossible things. He fell. And so they said, oh, well, now we need to do the shot where we see him falling through all of those uh, awnings down a skyscraper. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. And where does he land? So all of these these questions get answered. As a result of how did that shot go? But he would always have to tell his crew, "Do not stop filming, no matter what, because I don't know what's going to happen by the time I catch up to that train or fail to."
2: Well, it's interesting that you say that too, because Andrea, when we were first starting out, was like, "This is where kind of where I wanted to start, and this is what I want it to be at the end." And now we have you guys in the middle figuring it all we're out. In the tweeners. Yeah, that's amazing. How are we doing for time there, Dan? Uh, we are at almost 50 minutes. Okay, perfect. So. Um, I have greatly enjoyed our conversation um, about Red Earth, our devised theatre project, graphic novel collaboration. Um, Do you guys have any parting wisdom you want to to share? Would
3: you do this again?
2: Yeah. Think of it to our dear listeners. They are people who often want to make things and aren't sure if they should.
4: I would never work with Gregory. Again.
2: <laughs> uh, uh, Dan, please edit that out. In fact, there's enough there to just say I would work with Gregory again.
4: No, uh, I, I, I mean, uh, this company, One Trunk, that uh, that I that I started is all about like um, not only devised theater, but collaborating with artists outside of the theater medium to kind of see what can they bring into to my world and and how can we change theater through that influence and i think that this particular collaboration has been super eye-opening i've learned um not only a lot about theater but a lot about graphic novels and um and and so yeah for sure i would i would i would absolutely do this again but i think those the thing that's most exciting is about like how, how do we learn from each other when we go outside of our comfort zone and um And that's the thing that I would keep doing over and over and over, and encourage other people in whatever medium that they're working in to to try.
2: And you should join the fight and make comics.